It is October 6th. Hello, welcome to the QTR Podcast. How the hell is everybody today? Everybody having a good day? Great. Today's podcast is brought to you by the kind people that support me with money through Patreon. I want to shout out those people that make this podcast possible. I'll give you the two rules for the podcast, and then we're going to get well on our way today. You know what the nice thing is about the people that support the podcast is I either know all of them personally or I use their services. And so it's very easy for me to just shout them out and give them some love on the podcast, which I like to do. How about my friends over at Masterworks.io? Masterworks.io is a website that allows you to crowdfund access to priceless works of art. If you ever wanted exposure to the alternative art market, but you didn't feel like shelling out $200 trillion for a Da Vinci, Masterworks makes it possible because they have a completely SEC-registered legitimate platform where they will sell you shares in priceless works of art, in Masterworks, as they are called. Um, And it is a great way to get exposure to a market that isn't really... Liquid and has traditionally not been uh, easy to get exposure to if you are a retail investor. We had uh, CEO Scott Lynn on the podcast a couple uh, months ago. Great interview if you want to check that out and learn more about the platform. And if you use code QTR at masterworks.io, you'll skip the waiting list, which is something like 5,000 people. I can't remember, but it's enormous. Uh, Just make sure you check out Masterworks Disclaimer at masterworks.io slash disclaimer and that is also in my podcast description those links are if you want to check it out this podcast also brought to you by my exclusive gold and silver bullion provider i placed another order today actually and by the way i made an order last week with jm bullion and they turned around shipped it it had shipped the same day i put the order in and i got it like two days later so as far as my experience with bullion dealers goes and turning things around JM Bullion is just the best. Perhaps that is why they have done over $3 billion in sales over the last decade. Hmm, I don't know. Just just spitballing here. Just guessing. But uh, JM Bullion, my dear friends, they have a great reputation in the industry. They got great inventory. They have great prices. They will work with you if you need anything at all from JM Bullion. Maybe you've never bought Bullion before. You got questions or you want personalized service. You don't want to go through a website. Email my friend Kathy, K-A-T-H-Y, at jmbullion.com. Tell her QTR sent you that you are a podcast listener and they will be made sure that you get taken care of. The link to JM Bullion is also in my podcast description and you can follow them on Twitter as well. Like I said, I appreciate their donations on Patreon and support of the podcast, but also I appreciate them as a place where I do business. I like the guys over at JM Bullion, so check them out. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friend Pete Hedgetis over at the Trader's Path. Pete is running a lovely little online investing community called The Trader's Path where they will give you a daily watch list. They give you a live stream of all their trades. They trade red markets, green markets, stocks, and options. And Pete started The Trader's Path because he did not like the nonsense and bullshit of other trading services, the ones that promise you unlimited wealth in you know three easy steps or the ones where maybe it feels like they're front-running your orders. They don't really give a shit about you. So Pete said he wanted to start a service for the everyday person, 
which he has. And I've been getting good feedback on it. People have been telling me that they enjoy it and that Pete has been very accessible and he's been very accommodating. So if you ever want to check it out, Pete will give you, I'm sure, a 14-day free trial or he'll give you some kind of discount. Just reach out to him. Tell him QTR sent you. If you're looking for people to surround yourself with on the daily, if you day trade daily and you want a community, check out the Trader's Path first, man. Because Pete's an honest guy and like I said, He's been with me for over a year now, and I've got nothing but good feedback from the people that have used his service. So if that ever changes, I'll tell you. I'll be like, people come to me and say, Pete's turned into a real dick. But that hasn't happened. (laughs) So check out my buddy Pete at the Trader's Path. This podcast also brought to you by my dear friend Sang Lucci and Wall Street Jesus over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. The Sang Lucci Steam Room is a -a one-of-a-kind piece of beautiful software that tracks unusual options activity and follows market tape and big money moving around in the markets in a proprietary fashion. It's very different than most uh, companies that just offer you regular unusual options activity. Everybody's doing that shit now. Wall Street Jesus was the first guy to ever do that. When I joined Twitter back in like 2012, 2013, fucking almost a decade ago, Lucci and Wall Street Jesus were the only guys talking about unusual options activity. Nobody else was tracking it. Now it's a whole industry. So if you want to get involved with it and you want to check it out, stick with the guys that originated it. Stick with the OGs and check out my friends over at the Sang Lucci Steam Room. Beautiful piece of software that if you don't use it like an ass, might even pay for itself. I make no guarantees of that, of course. You uh, trade at your own risk. The Lucci Steam Room and the 3LT Playbook, which is Lucci's three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader. Those links are in my podcast description. If you want a free trial or anything else from any of these people, just reach out to them directly. Tell them I sent you. Uh, I have great relationships with all of them, and they would love to help you out and uh, guide you uh, in whatever way you need to to become comfortable checking out their shit. This podcast also brought to you by my friends at Corvus Gold. My friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, I will be at Traders for a Cause in 10 days. Check out tradersforacause.org. Make a donation. I'll be there with the Nigerians, Carson Block, and a bunch of other degenerates. Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, Matthew Zimmer, my buddy Jay Mintzmeyer, Russ Valenti, and Crichton Titus. Thank you guys for your continued support. How about some of my newer newer patrons, some people that hit me up on PayPal, my buddy Stephen Gould. Thank you very much. Carell, Marcos M., Matthew Stillwell, my buddy Brett. Uh, There were one or two others on PayPal, but I can't find the names here. But I just want to say thank you very much if you hit me up on PayPal. I I do appreciate it. My friend Brett Andrew Mitchell signed up last month. Thank you, buddy. Eric Reynolds, Jim Durkin, Scott Hagedone. Thanks for your continued support for becoming patrons of the podcast. Wayne Barger, Jim Fahey, uh, Gil Harum. Thank you. Macro Degenerate, still in the house. My buddy Ray Carota. What's going on, brother? Shane Yeakley. And how about some people that have been patrons of mine for a hot minute? We'll get these shout-outs done. Then we're going to be well on our way. My buddy uh, Michelle Koenig's been with me for a minute. Garrett Baldwin, Terravoir, RLT is still in the house. Thank you guys for your continued support. We got Mike Ackerman and Kovefi Capital still with me. VJ Sampath, thank you, VJ. And Dale Short, thank you guys so much for continuing to support the podcast. Ivan Johnson, Patrick Flynn. Appreciate you. This podcast has a two, actually, scratch that, has a three drink minimum now. We had to adjust the minimum for inflation. So make sure you take three to the face when you're listening. I got what I think is going to be a great story today and a good buddy of mine on the podcast. And finally, this is not life advice or investment advice. Do all of your research elsewhere, fools. As you noticed, 
Many people have rated me one star on the iTunes store. That is for a reason. Generally because the podcast is just not that good. With that being said, let's get started. All right, I'm happy to have on the line with me today uh, a friend of mine, Evan Robinson, my uh, one of my training partners, one of my jiu-jitsu training partners, and uh, and just an all-around great guy. Evan is uh, he owns his own business. He is a uh, philanthropist and uh, he's a Henzo Gracie blue belt in jiu-jitsu. Um, he owns uh, 36E Fitness, which is up near Allentown, Pennsylvania. So if you're in the area, stop in and give him a play. Um, and he's also started the Robinson and Van Brackle Jiu-Jitsu Scholarship Fund, which is a 501c3 charitable organization that is dedicated to providing jiu-jitsu and self-defense training to underprivileged and or bullied youth. I wanted to have Evan on today because he's got a hell of a story. And before we get into it, I wanted to talk about when I first met Evan, which was like two years ago when he started training at uh, the gym that I train at. And I don't know if you're like me or not, but people that are always in a great, great mood and are just super nice people sometimes put me off a little bit. I don't know if I think that's a character flaw of mine, but I get I get like real like weirded out sometimes by people that always seem to be in such a great mood. And when I met Evan, the guy seemed like he was in the best mood all the time, all day, every day. And I was like, what is the deal with this guy, man? I couldn't figure it out. He was like always taking pictures and always like joking and laughing. I was like, man, this guy is just having the best day of his life every day. And so as I got to know Evan a little bit better, and actually, Evan, I, I regret that I didn't learn from you, but I learned from, uh, I think, your Facebook post or your uh, or the, the magazine that you were featured in uh, about your incredible story that you were in prison <laughs> for how long? 15 years? Yes. Uh, All together, I did uh, I did 15 years, four months and three days. And I was like, okay, now I get it, man. Like, this dude is having the best day of his life. And then, of course, I felt like a dick, you know, because I was like, I had these preconceived notions. Like, man, nobody could be this happy all the time. And he's got to have an ulterior motive. But uh, with, with that out of the way, Evan, what is going on, man? Thank you so much for joining me. No, thank, thank, thank you for having me, man. And, and no, a lot of people, a lot of people ask the same questions. Believe it or not, you're not the only one. A lot of people always say, "Why in the hell are you always so happy?" But one, once I explained to him, I said, I, "I've sat in a cell for almost two decades for for foolishness that I did as a young man." I said, I even to this day, I get up and do silly stuff. To this day, I will get up and go open the refrigerator just to see the light come on, because I I haven't <laughs> I don't have a refrigerator or a living room or a bathroom or none of that. Now that I have it, you you know what they say, uh, you you really don't know what you have till it's gone, and when it's gone from you, you're like, oh my god, please, Lord, if you're listening, one more chance of life, and I'll never mess this up again. So it. Well- it, it you got and and not only that man but you I mean not only are you in great spirits all the time and not only are you just a kind person and a nice person to be around but and a great training partner but you've really uh done exceptionally well for yourself business wise yes. uh yes. now that you've been uh, out and how long have you been out uh I got out March 11 2013 
Okay, so it's over seven years now. But in seven years, which is a relatively short span of time, I mean, you've you built a business yeah. from the ground up. Uh, yes. T- talk a little bit about, I guess, tell my listeners the whole story, man. Take your time and just walk them through, uh, walk them through okay. everything. Well, I mean, if, if we take it back, if we take it back to the beginning in the in the the mid nineties, uh, late ni- mid nineties, I was uh, like most people, I was fresh out of high school, um, and I, at the time, I was very impressionable. I know it's kind of later. I mean, normally. I, I guess that you go through that in your teens, but in my, in my, in my late teens, early twenties, uh, I always tell people like for myself, I didn't, I didn't know if I was uh, Tupac one day, Biggie Smalls the next, <laughs> or Evan Robinson the next. There was, you know, I, I just trying to find out who who I was hanging with and who was cool, and I wanted to be accepted. I think by everybody, right? And and, and that leads down the wrong path. We we have to kind of pick and choose and those that don't want to be around it, it's cool because we're probably not meant to be in those circles. And, uh, one thing led to another and, and I got wrapped up with some friends. No one forced me or put a gun in my head, but I thought it would consciously, it sound cool to start robbing the local dealers. I, I don't, I, we kind of justified it as a Robin hood thing. Like, look, they sell drugs, we'll rob them and, uh, everything will work itself out. But uh, it's it's like the my mother used to say all the time: two rights don't make. I mean, two wrongs don't make a right. And uh, one of the robberies that we did caught up to us, and and at that time I, I was stuck between a rock and a hard place because they offered me a deal for far less time. They offered me a deal for ten to twenty years, and I couldn't take the deal because I, I wasn't by myself on on the robberies. It, it was like three of us, right? And since nobody else was really caught or really being a suspect I, I i was like oh man that he's like i felt like if i take the deal i'm going to ruin three other people's lives and and i was like i just i can't do it and next thing you know i was i was getting sentenced to 240 to 480 months <laughs> and um from there on i i just uh i found myself in jail i mean uh, the first i think uh, i think that first week i probably cried a lot and then uh, after that, I kind of picked myself up and and um, I just like, yo, it's got to be done. The time's got to be done. There's a, there's a saying in jail that says you you do the time. Don't let the time do you. And uh, I was blessed to be around some some older gentlemen who actually kind of looked at me as their son or nephew or cousin or whatever. But they kind of they kind of guided me because since I had to grow, I kind of grew up in prison. They, they kind of guided me on the right path, like stay focused, stay on whatever your goals are, stay in that, stay away from these guys. Those guys are definitely no good over there and, and just stay out of trouble. And one day you're going to get, you know, you're going to get your, your freedom back. So, I mean, just between that and, and, and trying to, uh, trying to have a good friend before I got locked up named Joe Van Brackle, who I named, uh, my scholarship with, he was, um, really a good part of my life too because he had just introduced me to jujitsu back then and uh we had a plan uh before i got in trouble the plan was to practice jujitsu live the jujitsu lifestyle move to san diego since that's like the mecca for jujitsu when it came first came to america and and going to the ufc and so forth and so on and uh i kind of messed that up when i went to jail but joe continued with the goal and the dream. So the entire time I was away, he was also a really big influence because 
he constantly kept me in the loop of what's going on and who's who and who's the next world champion and and bro I, I can't wait for you to come back home so you can get the training again and and so forth and so on so between staying out of trouble and reading and trying to just better myself i i just stayed the path i, I stayed the path of what uh i used to call myself the adopted son of hoist or somebody like i'm the adopted gracie but i'm here but how would a gracie act if he's in prison <laughs> so that's that's kind of how I, I i got through everything where where did you grow up evan and where did you uh where were you arrested okay so uh i grew i was born in new york city um um, and it's funny, the irony of this whole thing is when I was born, my mother did not want me growing up in New York City as for fear of getting in trouble because the South Bronx and stuff can be really rough neighborhoods. So my mother joined the military. And as a young man uh, from the age of birth to about 14, 13, 14, I pretty much traveled uh, with my mom, um, a military base, a military base. I, I've been I've been across the U.S. twice before the age of 14 and uh, been a lot of places, Spain, Germany. So I, I had a real good uh, worldly look on things at a young age because I traveled so much and right. I got to see different things. So that, that also played a part in, in my prison um, time because I was sort of different because my views were different. A lot of people have never been off their block or out of their neighborhood. Right. Right. So, Yes, they they constantly what one person said it was oh everybody kind of agreed with it and and because my experiences were a little different I, I got to you know I got to see things differently so certain things I was just like let me stay away from that <laughs> you know so but, were is that where uh, everything went down was it in New York City were you still there or you had moved to Allentown or where no I had moved to by this time my my mom was. Uh, Right outside of Philadelphia, there's a naval base, Willow Grove. I believe oh, yeah. that's. Uh, yeah, of course. So she, she was there at the time, and she had bought a house in Easton, PA. So this had took place in Easton, PA. Man, I know Easton. <laughs> Small town. Everybody knows everybody mm -hmm. in Easton. <laughs> yep. And so is that is that ultimately like where you where you got arrested? Were you arrested in Easton? Yes, I, I was arrested in Easton, and uh, and. From there, yeah, from from first entering the system, I went to uh, that's Northampton County. And then from Northampton County, they sent me to the state jail, which is I believe the first one I went to was Greaterford. And then from Greaterford, they send you to uh, another jail called Camp Hill, where they give you like your programming and you see your institutional counselors. And they kind of give you a, a, a laundry list of things that they would like you to complete before coming home. Right. And then from Camp Hill, they send you to what is known as your main jail, where you're going to do all your time at. And then from there, I got sent to SCI Somerset, where um, it's about 40 minutes outside of Pittsburgh. It's where the third plane from 9-11 went down in Somerset, Pennsylvania. That And that's where you did a majority of your time? That's where I did all my, yep, yep, all my time. Yeah, it's funny. Greaterford is, uh, Greaterford is not that far from where we train, right? Uh, no, I don't think so. I think Greaterford's, yeah, yeah, I think it's Montgomery County. Yeah, because I think I ride through, I think there's a bike trail that goes up past Greaterford, the Perkyoman Trail, and I think you right. can actually see it right there. So you went to several different uh, places before you wound up uh, at your final destination, if you want to call it. Yes, yes. What, they, what, the, what the prison system does, the Pennsylvania, what they do is they, all right, so... 
being that I'm from the eastern side of the state, what they do is they normally take most inmates or most people from the eastern side and ship them to the western side of the state and vice versa. And I, I asked them why they do that, and they say it's kind of like to – if you put a player, uh, if you put people where they don't know people, they tend to act better. Right. So they say. I'm, I'm not sure. But it never made sense because if you take all of Allentown, Bethlehem, and Easton and all ship them to – <laughs> the same place. It's all the same guys. <laughs> it's all the same guys. Yeah. Right. That's a, that's the only thing you did was make it harder to get as far as like visits and your family coming to see you. That part got really rough, but you, you took all the same guys from the same area and sent them all to the same jails. So I never understood that logic, but it, that's, that's how they do it. That's how it works. So what year were you, what year were you arrested? Uh, I was arrested 1996. Okay, so walk walk me through. I mean, walk me through as as much as you want to, man. We have unlimited time, but certainly don't you don't have to, uh, you know, go into any kind of detail or anything that you don't want to. But walk me through what what your mindset was like. I mean, what I mean for my listeners, for people that think I listen, you know. I did a, a couple nights in a holding cell, okay, and that was w- way more than I would ever like to do. <laughs> the idea of fifteen years right. is is unthinkable. So walk walk my listeners through, you know, what your mindset was like going into that, and uh, just as much as you can about the experience. I mean, what? Okay, okay. Well, I, I'll say I'll say this. Um, my experience, uh, my experience wasn't bad like i said i've seen some guys have totally horrible prison times there's some guys that have been victimized and taken advantage of i've seen that and i i thank god i didn't i didn't go through any of that yeah but i think i think mindset wise what i've learned from prison early was a couple of rules about prison that that i realized uh i say the first rule is be yourself a lot of men in prison don't know how to be themselves I, th- I think that's one thing that kept me out of a, a lot of problems is you have you're surrounded by you're in a uh, predator type alpha male environment and everybody for some strange reason feels they have to be the gangster of the block. Right. Everybody has to be hardcore. Everybody has to be this. And my thing with prison was I just want out of here. I don't give a damn about like the politics of prison, who's bad, and who's not. I just want out and being somebody other than myself or trying to act a character other than myself is what led me here. So I was like, Evan Robinson is Evan Robinson. Look, I, I like jujitsu. I, I like books. I like to read. Unfortunately, I am not in the best environment to want to see this guy right now, but this is who I am. So I, I think I really, I really didn't have too many problems because I wasn't trying. I wasn't trying to be, as they say, the Billy Badass of the block. I, re- I really wasn't. I-, I was just me. And when people would ask me, uh, guys my age or whatever, and we get to talking, and I, I, I just being me, I tell them, "Yo, I, I don't think that's really cool. I mean, you can, you can do that all you want, or you can get in all the fights you want, but I mean, initially, we're all trying to get out of here. So, constantly getting in trouble." It just it doesn't make sense to me. It's a, it's where I had a speech. Uh, I give you the speech that I gave that one of my friends who just came home. He reminded me that when I told the speech. So I had this speech called this reject speech when I first got locked up. And after after thinking about it, I said, damn, I feel like a reject. 
And my, my boy said, what do you mean? So at this time, I forget what it was, but basically there was roughly, there was roughly three, same now, about 330 million Americans, right? And I say out of 330 million Americans, I believe the, the prison population at the time was like 2.6 million uh, people incarcerated or on paper or some kind of supervision. And out of that 2.6 million, there's, right, give you a little backlash, uh, back flashback. There's a saying in prison, this is what brought this up, that guys would say, I don't care what part of the prison I'm in, my time is still going. So that was like their excuse to be super gangster or always getting in trouble because right. it didn't matter if they was in population or the whole or they just that's and it's just the attitude they had. So I said to me, this is this is totally crazy because I feel like a reject because I'm one of the three million out of the entire U.S. population that just couldn't get life together. I'm here with you guys. Right. So I'm not better than anybody. But. For me to say I don't care what part of the prison I'm in, I don't want to go to the prison of prison. <laughs> like that makes absolutely no sense to me. Like, like we're we're already in a bad situation. Right. Like, like there's got to be somebody who says enough is enough. So that that was always my uh. That's, that's pretty much the attitude I had, and 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 it, and it kind of served me well because people didn't. I didn't really have problems. I I really didn't have. I didn't come across so many problems. Um, I think I had like all together maybe two. Let me see. There was one, two, maybe three fights. And that's only because somebody uh, like the very first fight I ever got into. And it, it was just because I really thought this had to be done. Uh, me and a guy are playing cards and I catch him cheating. And I was like, bro, we ain't even playing for nothing. Why are you cheating? So he was like, oh, you act like a little bitch. You complaining about this. I said, yeah, but you're cheating over nothing. I can understand if, like, if there was a bag of chips or something on the line and you didn't want to pay, but it's nothing. Why cheat over nothing? So he kept with the name calling and name calling, and I was like, all right, I'm, I'm getting enough of this. So he's like, yo, we could do whatever. So I stood up. You know, now I'm in my feelings. My, my, oh no, you're, you're. This is a challenge. Screw it. He takes a swing at me. I, he, I ducked the punch, but he, he took a swing at me. And being in the environment that we're in, I just felt. Okay, we we definitely got to fight. So I I shot in. You, you see me at practice. I'm not a shooter, but I shoot in. I grab a single leg. We go down. Uh, he uh for a brief moment he had my back. I forgot how that even happened, but he had my back. He threw some punches on the back and reversed the situation. Um, I'm in his guard. I'm, it was really funny because he didn't even know what a guard was, but it it was it was it was it was like the very first fight I had in there, and and. Uh, all over, all over nothing, but it, it kind of helped too with the fact the way the fight went that people, I was always a big UFC guy and I would always talk about jujitsu and I'm talking about jujitsu in, in, in prison where guys do nothing but boxing, especially coming right. from Philadelphia. Right. It's a boxing town. So after, after the very first fight I had, then I had like this, uh, this mystery of, Oh, he must do because everybody calls it karate. Oh, he must do some kind of karate or something. <laughs> so, yeah. so, so it's another thing that people they just kind of they just kind of left me alone. Like they didn't really bother me, you know what I mean? But and they, I didn't even want to fight the guy. But it's like I told my mother. My mother was like, "Well, you ducked the punch. He didn't even land." But I, I explained to her, and my father explained to her, being in that environment, this over aggressive alpha male environment, that you really don't want to stand around and somebody takes a swing at you. Cause you never know who the next person is that might try and take a swing at you. 
Yeah. So did, did you feel kind of? Did you feel good getting the first fight out of the way? Kind of. <laughs> yeah. No. I, I, yeah. No. I was nervous. I was really nervous, boy. I, I was. I was like, oh, it's going down. But uh, yeah. No. I just. I, I I thank God for the the this the few months the probably about five and a half six months of jujitsu I had before I went in there because it, it gave me more confidence after that. Then I was like, oh yeah, this works, this works, and no one else knows what I'm doing, so this works. It's funny too because <laughs> you know you compete a lot too. I mean, yes. you know we've uh, we've actually we've competed against each other, uh, yeah, and we've gone to the couple of the same competitions. But I know you and your buddy Fredo. Uh, just recently went to another competition together and uh, you compete all the time. And when I think about it, you know, I've competed, I don't know, four times maybe, but I still get, you know, you still get nerves when you're going into competition. And as I was looking at your photos the other day from the competition you just went to, I was like, man, I'm like, Evan, you know, he just, he must just thrive on the adrenaline or he must not get the nerves. (laughs) And then I was thinking to myself, shit, like, all right, he was in prison for 15 years. Like maybe the jujitsu tournament, like maybe his nerves aren't, do you still get nerves when you compete or what? Well, tell tell you the truth, uh, right before stepping on the mat. Yes. It it gets to me, but I think that happens to all of us. I really do. It's like, I I was looking, you know, when you're looking at the guy or you're, you're just thinking, Oh boy, it's competition time. He's going to try and tear my head off. Um, hopefully I tear his head off. Um, yeah, I think, I think you still get nervous until, you're out there. I mean, like the, the times I've seen you compete, it seemed like once, once, uh, once you had the handshake with the other guy, all everything just went out the window. <laughs> as soon as there was a collar grab, you know, it was like, okay, it's on. We're in the middle of this. We've been here. Let's do it. But I, I think I think everybody gets a little nervous if you don't. I, I don't. I don't know if you're human if you really don't get nervous. Yeah, they say the only, the only way to get around it is just to keep competing. That's the only yes. way to kind of calm your nerves. So I haven't I haven't experienced that. Yet, but I'm I'm, hope, I'm hoping that in the future that that starts to happen. I think I was more nervous at the last competition than I was at any other one I'd ever been to. But uh, right, I don't. Maybe this because I just moved up a belt. But so listen, when you were, uh, what was a normal day look like? So if you were to take the average of all your days that you were in prison over 15 years, I mean, what what did a normal day look like from the time you woke up, you know, to the time you uh, went to bed? To to they locked us in. Normal day in prison. All right. It's normal day. Let me see if I can get the time right. It's been a while. I will say the day starts at seven. Counts at seven. So you'll hear this every morning. Count time, count time. Uh, morning count lights on, morning count lights on. Uh, all inmates are required to go to something with the count. Uh, your cooperation is thank you, thank you. And then they, they blast this loud bell. Uh, bell comes on, lights come on. Your day's beginning. The, the officers... Uh, depending on who's working the block, come around and count everybody, make sure everybody's there. And then once the, they check everybody's there, they call it count clears, they open the cell doors. And then from there, your average day begins. So my, my average day was, uh, let's see, you get up, you go to breakfast. I worked on the paint crew for a long time. Um, so with the paint crew, if anything, if there's a cell that needs to be painted or anything in a prison that needs to be painted, they, they kind of call the paint crew and we go around, touch up something or repaint something or whatever they have you do. But that's normally uh, get up, you go to work. On days you work, you know, you work most of the days. Sometimes you don't. Uh, but you get up, you go to work. Uh, there's normally lunch at somewhere between 
uh, some jails a little earlier than others, but say between 10:30 and 12, they'll be doing lunch. Um, after lunch, you go back to your cell and lock in for count. Um, after count again, you come back out. If you're in a work crew, this is normally one o'clock now. So you come back out and go back to work. Um, whatever your job is, uh, mine, like I said, mine was paint. So we go back to work to about from one to three or two thirty, depending on what else we had. And after that, then it's back to the block. After you go back to your block, uh, for let's see, probably got about a half hour of rec, and then uh, mainline which is eating um, comes about because we always eat early. You go to dinner after dinner, then you got things to do. You have a, you can go to the yard um, uh, in the yard. Most people, this is the average. Most people either lift weights or run a track or some kind of physical fitness. Um, I played a lot of chess. I worked out um, on days. I didn't have to work. If I had the day off or whatever, uh, with the time I would be working up, we have wrecked during the day too. So you'd catch me in a library. Like in the beginning of my time, I was always in a law library trying to learn more about cases and my case in particular to see if, if there was any way I can get less time or just learning. I mean, I, I did a lot of stuff in school. I'm excuse me in jail. I went to a lot of school things. I, I got, a I got a certified through Penn state and fiber optics and, I did, I did a lot of school stuff, uh, small business management and uh, that type of thing. I took a lot of college courses correspondently and played a lot of chess. That's <laughs> really what I did with my time and, and got letters from Joe and just learned more about jujitsu. Practiced a lot of jujitsu on a low. That I did. Is that right? How did you do that? Well, I, I, like I said, I was blessed because it was, it, was it was the late mid-90s. It was the mid-90s and jujitsu wasn't as big as it is now it was right. huge but not as big as it is now so uh during my time away uh co's uh, we have a few co's that were just getting into jujitsu and uh, a few lieutenants that actually fought uh uh amateur uh cage matches mma fights and and it's like that entire circle we would gravitate towards each other <laughs> and and like we're in somerset like we had laundry rooms if uh, I had one lieutenant in particular that he would tell me and take pictures of all his fights and and we talk about some things because you would have thought then I was a blue belt just because of just a little bit of jujitsu I knew I had a better knowledge and understanding than uh, some of the guys who just had started so it, it we gravitated towards each other and we talk about jujitsu and and then they were like hey. Uh, Want to show me that move? I show you what we did. Now, I, you know me. I'd be like, hell yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, so when everybody else was uh, away and locked down or whatever, or he'd be like, hey, can you help me grab, grab the laundry carts? Hell yeah. And then we'd be in the back, and he was like, well, he's working on this. What do you think of that? And I was like, ah, I remember something like this, and thanks for showing me. And I said, we used to do this, and and it it, it was it was it, it was all right. So, I, I built some friendships with some CEOs that um that uh let me uh I could every once in a while I had a friend that was interested and in, we go like in the, like I said, in the back in the laundry room on a hard floor. I mean, we didn't have mats or nothing, but as long as they trusted me that no one would get hurt or whatever. And I had a real good rapport with everybody, but not just inmates, the staff. I, I didn't really have a heart jail problem. Like I'm so blessed because I've seen some guys go through it. I, I've, I've seen some, I've seen some horrible things and, I, and I'm blessed. I never had to be part of anything horrible. I, I really had a good stay, so they, that helped out. 
when you Bad. when you start getting like at what point how close to the point when you know that you're getting out do you start to kind of get that adrenaline rush is it a year is it two years away is it two months away well it, go, it goes like this uh I, for i can't speak for everybody from for myself for myself when i got down to the i mean i, I was like a overachiever but when i got down to that last my last five years I, all i could think about was going out the door and there's a thing in, in jail like you shouldn't think about it you should always uh how do they say it uh hope uh think for the best hope for the worst or something like that just in case you get a parole hit or you get something or something happens right, right. that you, you don't get crushed if you don't make it out. Right. And when I hit the five year mark, uh, I tell you this, um, here's a true story for Somerset. If you, if you know anybody there or could talk to any, or if I, if I ever get a chance to put you in contact, with one of my counselors that I still talk to to this day, I did the longest reign on an honor block. Like every jail that I, I know of in Pennsylvania has honor blocks. And, I wanted to get to the honor block. I swear, my first year there, <laughs> because the the way the way the prison system works is they in Pennsylvania they have a level system. You come in, you're level five, uh, five being um, the worst, uh, level four, level three, level two, uh, level one being parolees, and no level you're free, you're home. Um, when I first came in, because I had a robbery, I was a level four, and the way the prison system works is every year. You'll come up for reevaluation with your counselor and your unit, your unit manager, and they'll uh, assess where you are, where they think you are. And every year, if you pass this test, normally your level will go down. So starting from Camp Hill, when I first met my very first counselor, after talking to him, after after the, the meeting went like this, I came in, he had my file, he read my file, and then he looked at me. And 10 minutes into talking, he said, there's no way in hell you're the guy that's in this file. And I was like, look, I did a robbery. It, I did it. I can't take it back. It is what it is. It's bad. Yes, I know. And I got a ton of time. But it, I, I mean, shoot, we all do something stupid. It's just my stupid was a hard hitting stupid. And uh, the guy was like, man, I, if I could, I'd make you a level two. <laughs> he said, but they'll have my job because on paper it says you're a robber. Like you, you, you went, you came, I came up safe for armed robbery. And, and, and they were like, there's just no way. He said, but he told me how it works. So he said, when you get upstate, when you see your manager or your unit manager and your counselor, just don't get in no trouble. And every year your, your level will go down. So first year in Somerset, uh, the following year I went from a, well, I stayed a, a four. I went into the four, but I was still a four the following year. And I asked him why my level never went down. And the counselor was like, it's not you. It's just that you have so much time and your time is kind of dictating what's happening. Right. And I was like, well, that's not fair. I, I said, uh, I said to me, I said, you, you have this system in place where every year you drop the level accordingly. And if I get to a level two, uh, then I can go to the honor block. And what, what I mean by honor block is they have a block where you you have more privileges, not, not a whole lot, but like, uh, you can stay up later. Uh, you have access to hot water and cold water longer. You can take a shower whenever. You know what I mean? The, just pr stuff that you would never think would be a privilege just to have that you can do. Sure. You look forward to it. So as time went on, I kept – I was like, are you going to lower my level this time? And they were like, all right, Robinson, we're going to lower your level. <laughs> are you going to lower my level this time? And in between these levels, there's degrees of the levels. Uh, 
so kind of like stripes on the blue belt or stripes in jujitsu. So I, I'm constantly trying to stay out the mix. I don't get in trouble. I'm just flying under the radar doing what I have to do. And uh, every year I'm on top of them. So I say after about five years in, I approach the, the unit manager on the honor block and I say, hey, what does it take to get on your block? I mean, I've been, I've been working my ass off here trying to get on your block. And, and the man said, he said, Robinson, we don't take guys on the honor block unless they have five years left. He's like, you got a ton of time. I was like, look, that is not how this is written. <laughs> that is not what the rules say. The rules say if I don't get in trouble, you lower my level, you'll give me a chance. So right. give me a chance. So I literally had to make a, a, a deal with this guy. And I told him, I said, if you give me the opportunity to get on your block, I swear to God, if I ever mess this up, I'll never ask to come back again. But by the rules, by everything else, I just I just want to get more freedom. I appreciate anything that I have. Let me just give me a chance. After that conversation, he called me on honor block. And uh, at that time when I got there, I was seven and a half, seven and a half, almost eight years before even being considered for parole to be let out and uh but he gave it to me and i did the entire time on that honor block <laughs> and they, they always look back they was like man that really meant he was going to be on his honor blocks for going home so that's, that's crazy it. that's like the first the first step to you know yes. clawing clawing back from uh from zero right is from it, zero yes is get to the honor block to start and get to the honor block you and never and look back from there, from there huh Right. Because like I said, once you get to the honor block, they have levels. And um, like the first level, once you're even though technically you, I think I went there as a level three. And that's only because I had so much time. They just didn't really want to make me a two. But once they sent me over there, they made me a two. And then the way the two system goes is like you have a two R, which means you're level two, but you have uh, outside restrictions. Like I can go anywhere within the prison, but I couldn't leave out the prison. And then you get to a level, uh, what's after 2R? I forget what it is, but then those are the guys that you see that have the the ability to leave the prison and go work on the highways and stuff like that. Okay. Even though you're picking up trash, it's still better than being around a bunch of, right. I like to call them the grumpy old guys sitting around. I'm like, I just give me an opportunity. I don't care. <laughs> and, uh, you work your way all the way down, so. I I, uh, I made it to the lowest level that you can possibly be as a two, but they only because I had so much time. I I think as one counselor would say was, I don't think you would ever run. I don't think you would get in trouble. But with as much time as you got in, Lord forbid if you got out and did something crazy, then my job is on the line. So I, I just said thank you and I, and I and I respected it. But it, it was it was a fight getting over there. <laughs> it was a, it was a rumble. That's crazy. So what, I mean, what does it feel like when you're counting down from five years on your way out? And also tell me, I mean, how much shit did you have planned out, Evan, for when you were going to get out? Because, I mean, I see you here seven years later and it's like, it looks to me like you've been building a business your whole life. It looks to me like you've been working your whole life. It looks to me like you've been training your whole life. So, I mean, did you did you have all this shit, you know, planned out and ready to roll so that day one as soon as you stepped out you were just you knew what direction you were taking your life in or what yes sort of yes so uh like most inmates i, I don't want to say i'm gonna say most like a lot of inmates not maybe not most a lot of inmates we have a lot of time we read 
And I started reading books, Warren Buffett, Oprah Winfrey, you name it, uh, any person successful. If I could get my hands on their book, I would get it. And that's one, um, one of the things that helped me out. Um, I don't care for Russell Simmons. Uh, I always look at things from a hip hop perspective. Sometimes P Diddy, whoever had a book, if they had a book and they was talking about success, I was trying to get it. And what I realized and, and everybody's book, um, everybody's book, I had a book by Walt Disney. Um, everybody had the same thing, the same trait. If you can find something that you like to do, and we hear it all the time. If you can find something that you like to do and you can make it, if you can make your hobby, your life, do that, pursue it because you'll probably be most successful of it. Right. So I have a, a notebook that I still have. I'm actually looking for it now as I'm talking to you. I have a notebook that I came home with that I wrote out my plan. And my plan for success for myself was to come home, open a gym, um, and get into jujitsu. I always said uh, those would be my three uh, – I had another one getting into music because I, I, I read, write, and compose. I play the piano. But the music industry is hard. It's very hard. It's, you got the same odds as hitting the Powerball for the music industry. So I, I literally followed the plan. Um, I wrote out my uh, what I call the SEDS, the Street Combative Defense Systems, uh, my 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 jujitsu base uh, combat thing I was working on. I my plan for my gym uh, and and getting back into jujitsu. And and I followed I followed that plan all the way from from um geez when did i start writing that out I, I believe i started writing that out in like 2006 and I, I followed it all the way till i got home in 2013 and and kept to it just i kept to it for all the uh the shitty jobs I'm, i don't know if i could curse but for for the yeah, jobs that i had actually <laughs> okay <laughs> for, for 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 working i mean you talking about being taken advantage of when i came home i was driving forklift making $7 an hour. I was polishing metal. I was coming home every day looking like a coal miner. Like I was sitting on this bus going, you know, going to work and, and going back to the halfway house. And, and, and I'm literally, you would think I, I you would think I was covered in, in a black belt from head to toe, metal dust and dust flakes. And people were like, Ooh, I'm not sitting next to him. I mean, I, I did every shitty job I can think of to just build my credit, build my credit. Cause I knew I had to ask for a loan, right. <laughs> build my credit, do what I had to do. And, and that's what I did. I, I stuck, I stuck to my book. I stuck to my book till the end. And, uh, once, uh, all the pieces fell in play and I, my credit was right and everything was right. I, I went over across the street where I live at at a Wells Fargo bank. And I went right in and applied for a loan and they gave it to me. And I was off to the races from that point on. That's a fucking awesome story, man. That's, you know, just walk me again through what steps you had to take. Because, I mean, what did you have when you got out of prison? I mean, what did you have to your name? To my name? Nothing. <laughs> I mean, did you have a place to stay? Did you have $10? Did you have, I mean, what did you have? Yeah, no, I, well, good thing is, uh, I mean, I, I had family support. And uh, I was blessed that way. But the way Pennsylvania does it is anybody who does more than five years in prison uh, has to go to a halfway house. They, they have like these welcome back to society reintroductory programs that they have. So my, my, uh, 
I got to a halfway house. The halfway house they sent me to was called, I believe it's called Warnersville. It has two names, Warnersville and Conowago. And it sits right outside of Reading, Pennsylvania. It's, it sits uh, maybe 20 minutes outside of Reading. And when I went there, I was on a 90-day program to welcome back to society. So I had to get a job. Um, they require you to get a job, try and find a place, uh, get everything, all your fears in order, and so forth and so on. So the very first day that I got out, when I got to the halfway house, my mother and my father were there to greet me. Um, my best friend showed up with uh, the very first smartphone I've ever seen in my life. Uh, he, he threw me a BlackBerry and just said, figure it out. You'll figure it out as you play with it. <laughs> um, and from there, I had to learn about the Internet. I didn't know everything at that time was online. So I was still going to jobs and asking for uh, this only lasted one day. I had a job two days later, but uh, trying to fill out applications, uh, paper applications and everything was online so i had to learn how to you know go to the reading library and and, and fill out on online and and just get a grasp of what the internet was because that was a huge change um but along with the phones but uh i i i was blessed uh if i needed some dollars or needed some money my my parents and my, my boy um they would they would whatever i needed and from there i got a job two days later at a williams metal finishing I didn't know nothing about it, but I convinced the guy. I said, look, if you, if you give me the job, uh, you know how to drive a forklift? I lied. Yeah. <laughs> I, never, I never drove a forklift a day in my life, but, it, you know, I, I learned on the spot quickly. Uh, I learned how to polish metal quickly. I uh, learned how to load a truck. Yeah, I said, okay, let's, all right. So, but, uh, yeah, no, I, I just I just stuck to the plan. And on my 90th day, on day 88, I was uh, – I was ready. Day 88, I, I literally had paychecks saved up, money saved up. Um, I was ready. I, apartment, um, the first, my first landlord, I never forget him, Carl Eckwald. Uh, he, he had a, you know, he, he had a place set up for me um, after looking for places because I called him. He was the last ditch effort. I, I mean, I, I almost cried looking for a place. Um, I didn't want to be in Reading per se because Reading's not the greatest neighborhood of neighborhoods, but, uh, I couldn't, I couldn't find any living places like where I want, I wanted to live in sinking spring. I couldn't get there. Uh, I was telling the truth and telling the truth can will hurt. It can hurt. And sometimes hurts guys just right. coming home. Yep. Um, like I didn't have a, I didn't have a credit history. I was in jail for 20 years. Damn near. I, I don't, I, I didn't, I was the ghost in the machine. Like I didn't exist. And you put, have you ever been convicted of a felony? And I'm like, yeah. And then when you say robbery, and then when you tell the truth, armed robbery, they're like, what? How many years did you murder someone? That's always the next question. Did you murder somebody? <laughs> like, no. But it's just, oh, my God. They kept saying, well, hey, you should go try living in Reading. I said, oh, I don't want to be in Reading. Uh, uh, well, we, they, I guess they have, the, they have the right to refuse you. And, boy, talking about doors in your face, uh, man, that – until I met Carl, some somewhere along the line, somebody said, "Hey, try Carl Eckball. He has he has places," and uh, he he put me on the Pike Street, but it's like the last street before leaving Reading, so uh, before crossing over in the Temple. So it wasn't like I was in in the city. I was in the city of Reading, but I wasn't like in diehard downtown where all the violence and everything takes place. Reading right. that part, I wanted to stay away from. But uh, yeah, Carl gave me uh, my first apartment with a little backyard and basement and i was the happiest dude ever man i had a kitchen 
<laughs> bedroom. <laughs> you can't tell me anything. I, I thought I, I was balling. Got my bus pass and taking my laundry to the to the laundromat on Sundays and saved up a little more and, and got me my first little tiny, tiny car. But I love that car. I had a had a Nissan Versa. It's only as big as, as my bathroom. Is, my bathroom now is bigger than that Versa. But <laughs> Lord, Lord knows when I had that car, boy, it, it, it was it was my car. I didn't, I didn't have to walk five blocks right, to do right. my laundry anymore. I love that car. And, how did you get? How did you get from there to uh, you know the, owning the gym and and you know driving around okay. in, a, in a nice car? I see you now. Yeah, yeah, you see my cars <laughs> now, right? <laughs> no, so so the gym thing came out when I um I I after about a year I left the Reading area and came back to the Lehigh Valley because I you figured since I was from the Eastern area. When I got locked up, um, my mother still lived in the Eastern area and she lived in Bethlehem. So I just came back closer to family. And in the process of coming back to family, I got a job. I started working in the gyms. And uh, they don't really pay a lot, but because of my personality and, and it's part of my plan, like I was like, man, all right, all right, I'm at a better spot. Let me uh, get certified as a personal trainer. Um, so I did that and get certified as a wellness coach. And I did that. And staying in the gym, I was like, yeah, the gym is it for me. So same thing. Just stayed, uh, I stayed between three gyms, between Max Fitness, uh, Max Fitness, LA Fitness, and Gold Gym. I rocked out for a little bit. I mean, worked there forever. I stayed in, I was in Gold for like three and a, about three of those years. And uh, saved up money, worked part-time jobs. And I, when my credit score hit 800, I got to 800 credit score in roughly about that three years. And. I went over to Wells Fargo, applied for a, a loan. They gave me a, a small business loan and a business line of credit. And from there, it was like, there was no stopping me. I was like, the pieces are falling into place. And uh, that's that's how the gym, uh, that's what I started the gym with. And always had a vision of it uh, along with the, the jujitsu. So I, I was like, this goes hand in hand. <laughs> it, just, it just goes hand in hand. It's meant to be. And just it just kept working that's it it's not no no major no major thing it's just dry, just going for that goal just trying to get that goal finish that goal it's just working right it's just working man just putting your head just down working. and working man because you know what you got out with nothing and like you said and, man every every box you check yes on an application you got to say oh I'm a, I'm an ex felon or people ask you know if you you're brave enough to tell them the truth like right. they are, you know, you know, you know what that means, right? Yes. You know what I mean? All these things in your past and you do it. That's how you, that's how you get it through seven, every day. Seven years, man. You just put your head down and you just fucking ran through brick walls. Look, what I see, because I've had, I've Harrisburg, the pro board has asked me to come back to uh, Harrisburg one day. They didn't give me a date. They was like, could you come back and talk to other guys who got out? Maybe you can spark something in them. Yeah. And I told them, I, I have no problems with that. That's like near and dear to my heart. Anybody I can help get out of a bad situation. But I, I realized, and it's not a but, I, I figured if one person gets the message, it's something was accomplished. Right. It just, it just seems like a lot of guys, I, I look at this recidivism rate they're talking about. Out of 10, out of 10, seven guys automatically go back. And when I talk to guys that have went back that I know, I was like, what happened? Oh, they wasn't paying me enough or, oh, they, they, my boss tried to play me and ask me to stay for overtime or 
And I'd be like, yo, I think everybody on earth goes through that. Right. You know, you know what I mean? I said, I said, dude, I said, I said, I, 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 I lied on an application and surprisingly they got me in. But I said, I, I said, from what I found out, forklift drivers make a hell of a lot more than $7 an hour. <laughs> I said, you, you, you got to do what you got to do. You just, you got to, you got to, you got to, yeah, as you said, I, I never said it like that. You, you put your head down and say, this won't be forever and keep working until something better comes along. Yeah. $7 an hour is better than being in prison. You know? Yeah, Prison, I can tell you. Uh, top wage, just in case you you listeners want to know, top wage in prison and PA is forty two cents. Yeah, wow, forty two cents, and and people work proudly for that forty. I know I did for I was in paint crew. <laughs> people work proudly for that forty two cents. So I, I personally say, if you go from making forty two cents an hour to seven dollars an hour, you are balling. <laughs> wow. You're balling. I just have such You're... such admiration for just doing it you know not not getting out and feeling sorry for yourself or wasting time or you know just going back to uh you know living a life that was just kind of mediocre i mean it's so clear just from knowing you and i think a big part of that too is i see you all the time so i mean i see your attitude firsthand um that you really you know, you have no shortage of motivation and, and it feels like you just keep wanting to take in that next step. Cause I've only known you for uh, maybe two and a half years, but in that time I've watched you grow what you've been doing, not just right. your business, but also now with the uh, start in the scholarship fund uh, as well. Yes. Um, and it just feels like to me that you, you stay hungry, man. And you just, you keep wanting to push the envelope and like, you know, do you feel like you feel like you, you want to keep doing that? You want to expand the gyms? You want to, you know, keep yes. going? You're not going to rest on your laurels? You, you, you know what you said? You said the keyword. You, you said the keyword without having to do it. And I learned it because I had to do it. Time. Time. They say children are our most precious things. And I believe that. I don't have kids. So for me, the next best thing next to children is time. Time is the most precious thing you have we right. all have because our clock is ticking the moment we're born we're guaranteed to die and in and, and the world we live in now unfortunately some people die a lot sooner than others some some really good people die and you figure this ain't even fair why did they die you got people who you feel like should die but they ain't die. <laughs> but time time is the one thing we, we we can't control and i learned in prison as they say time waits for no man it doesn't so after all the time I wasted, I mean, I've learned a lot in that time, but it's still wasted time and I can't get back. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I wasn't around to help my mother and my father grow old. I am now, you know, and I'm proud of that. Like now they call me, they need something. I get it, whatever. Um, but I can't make up for, I can't, I can't, it's gone. So now that I'm in a position where I truly, I appreciate time. I don't, I don't put it off. I, I don't, if there's something that you can do in a day with your time, do it. If there's something that you want to do that makes yourself feel better, definitely do that. Uh, life is too short. Life is too short not to be doing what you want to do and, and chase the things that you want to chase. It's, it's incredibly too short. It's because it's, it's of time. Did, did, so you, got, did, did you ever worry you were going to die in prison? 
Did I ever worry I was going to die in prison? Because I, yes, I know you went young, but 20 years is a long time. I, I had one incident, one incident, one incident that made me nervous, but I'm glad. I had a lot of, uh, I call them my jailhouse brothers that, that, that I talk to, I still talk to this day. And uh, I had an incident one time. You know, it's funny. It's over a card game again. Here we are playing spades. <laughs> spades. Spades is one of the things. That public pro- public service announcement. If you're in prison, stay away from spades. But uh, <laughs> we're playing <laughs> we're playing spades. And this time, we're, I think we was gambling. It was like bags of chips. Bags of chips or something. And we're playing spades. And I catch the dude in a renege. And I call him on it. And he got mad as hell. Now, unfortunately, this guy was a lifer. He was like, yo, why did you? I said, bro, you cheated. I caught you. I caught you. You definitely cheated. So he's upset. Now, one of the things about learned about lifers is lifers, you really don't have any. Well, they don't have anything to lose. Right. And in the state of Pennsylvania, a lifer, if a lifer catches another life sentence, it's just a night. Like, like lifers, you got to be careful because. Most of them seem to be, even though they have a life sentence, are the better of inmates. They're not out to prove anything. They're not super tough guys. They're, they understand that somewhere along their time, they made peace with the fact that they're doing life. And they don't try and, like, bully somebody into, oh, I'm doing life, so you got to listen to me. I, I, I'd rather be around, from what I've been through, I'd rather be around a bunch of lifers than guys who are doing, like, five to tens and three to sixes. Those guys just don't know how to act. The lifers, this particular lifer, I was like, bro, you cheated. I got you. He caught an attitude. So I try not to catch an attitude back because now he's calling me all kinds of names. But you can only let things in prison really go so far. Right. You really can't because you have to – everybody's watching. So at that time, I, I, I jumped into my attitude and I said, look, man, I said, evidently you're mad at somebody. It's not me. You say it just like that. That's just how I said it. I said it's not me. I said you need to be mad at yourself. Oh, you're not ready for a psychoanalytical yes, take on things. Yes. <laughs> this dude was pissed. You hit some deep down shit with him. So I said something I shouldn't have said, and I've always apologized because you never really went. You don't make fun of the time people are doing, and I wasn't right. making fun of his time. It's that where we were at now. I said, look, whoever you're mad with, you need to check the, you need to, whether it's yourself or the judge. And when I said the judge, that sent him into a rage. He was like, are you making fun of my time? And I said, no, but evidently you're mad about something. And maybe I was too calm. That could have been another thing. Maybe I was just too calm with what you said, like the analyzing thing. He went, he said, I'll be right back and get my knife. And he really went and got a knife. And I was like, oh shit, he's serious. So I was like, oh. What do I do? What do I do? I said, I don't know what to do. So I take off. And I literally, this is what I did. This is, sounds going to sound crazy, but this is really what I did. Uh, this was around the time that the yard was going out. So I ran out to the yard real fast. And I went to, they have like a, the check-in where you can check your state ID. In, and I got a wiffle, not a wiffle ball, but the softball bat. So my thing was... <laughs> I said, I'm going back inside when they call yard and I'm taking this bat with me. I'm going to take it back through activities, but I'm not going to return this bat to activities. I'm going to take this bat back to the block. And if I have to, I'm going to bat this dude down. This is what I was thinking because he, he had life. And I, the bad thing, like I so said, you, you want to avoid trouble with lifers because if they're having a bad day, they might say, 
it doesn't always happen. It doesn't happen 90% of the time, but you might have a life who says, you know what? I'm having a bad day. And since you got smart with me last year, I might kill you today. That is a possibility. And, uh, so I'm coming back on the block with this bat, which is totally legal. Cause I bypassed, I, I bypassed the, uh, what's it called? The, the sports, the athletic department. And I got this, and now I got an illegal bat and I'm walking onto a block with this bat tucked under everything I could think of. And I, and I'm thinking if this guy approaches me, I, he's got a knife. I got a bat. I think I got a good chance. I'm going for it. But I was blessed. Like I said, there were some older guys that I've been around and, they caught wind of it, and when I came back on, they kind of got in between me and steered me right back to activity so I can drop off this bat. <laughs> they had him pulled to the side talking about, well, look, he, he gave him a chance to apologize. He wasn't talking about your time, but he did catch you cheating. And and the next day, me and the guy was cool. And that was the only time, the only time. he was from This guy was from Pittsburgh. He's real good dude. But I think when I said he's mad at the judge, that that just sent him over the top. And uh, I apologize for mentioning the judge part, and he apologized for pulling the knife out, and and we ain't never had a problem it. since. <laughs> yeah, pretty much, Beautiful. and I'm glad. Good, good. Yeah, it's uh, you probably, you know, hit a nerve. You probably, probably wasn't expecting you to come in like a psychiatrist and absolutely nail it. You probably nailed it. That's, <laughs> that's the problem. You know what I mean? You were probably dead on balls, right? Or he didn't, he didn't understand what the hell you were getting at. Remember in a 40 year old virgin when he's like, he's like, I don't know what you're saying, but I'm going to take it as disrespect. You know, maybe right. one of those, one of those types of situations, unfortunately. Yeah. But, but uh, yeah, that, that was the only time I was nervous. I was like, Oh my God, I'm not going to make it home. Cause, uh, I, I'd never, I mean, no, nah, that's that's it was just it was just a scary situation because he was a lifer and I knew the guy, but I I didn't know him. Like I was like, damn, he really pulled out a knife, and he's you can see he's seriously upset. Like he's he's like, we're gonna do this, and I was I was nervous. I was like, oh shit, what do I do? I couldn't think of nothing else to do, so I I, I made my way through the traffic to the the yard line when they beelined outside as fast as I could, and went to activities and went to go get a bat, which was real stupid on me anyway. Right, because look, this is how jail works. You got to turn in your stuff to get stuff. They have my ID, so when they realize that this bat is missing, who's the last person with the bat? Whose ID do you have? ID they have, they have mine. But I, I was nervous. I didn't know what to think because I was like, "Damn, I didn't, I didn't, I don't want to die in prison." <laughs> this wasn't part of the game plan. So, as somebody that you know lived in the prison system like that, man, I'm I'm very interested in your take on. Uh, the current, you know, civil unrest across the nation and things like prison reform. Um, what, where do you stand on these issues when you when you see uh, what's going on right now with uh, uh, all the social unrest and you know it's a tumultuous time in the country leading up to the election. Um, prison reforms is is a big issue as well. I'd love to hear your right. take on that. Well, my big thing is. My big thing is I, I honestly – as far as prison reform, I believe there needs to be change, but not so much in the change of of like – for example, um, my big beef – this is my beef with the prison system. It's not the fact that I did a crime. I did a crime, so I, I deserve to be punished. I'm totally cool with that. I looked at the amount of time that I had. Like – what I, what I mean by that is I know I have met men that have purpose, purposely went out to kill somebody. 
the jealous husband, the jealous boyfriend, whatever the case. Uh, they purposely went and waited outside the dude's house or met dude at the bar, took a gun out and went to go kill this person and ended up with 20 to 40s. The same sentence I had that some even had less time. And the thing that got me was I said, damn, how did I get so much time for a robbery when no one got hurt? Right. And that part never sat with me. And that's the only, truly, that's the only beef I have with the prison system. I don't believe that sentencing is fair across the board. And I, I hate to make this, uh, I don't even want to make it. Not... There's people that get convicted of murder that don't get 20 years. Yes. You know what I, I, mean? I, 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 I don't want to make it a, a racial thing. I'm not going to make it that. But I have, look, I know so many Raheems and Jamils and, 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 and Yousefs that have, I'm speaking strictly for the state of Pennsylvania, that have life sentences for homicide because of some of the neighborhoods some of these guys come from. Like I, I've, like some of the Spanish dudes I met that live in the Badlands, after, after they describe it, I kind of understand why they call it the Badlands. I mean, I've never been there, never visited, but just from stories of people that I know live through Philly, I've, I've heard there's some really crazy spots. And I say all these guys are doing life sentences for homicide, for whether it didn't matter the circumstances of how they caught the homicide. It's just they're all doing life sentences for homicides. And and then I've met. And like I said, it's not a big it's not a racial racial thing. But then I meet these James and and I'm not going to say his name because he's a real dude uh, and his family knows me. But and you meet these other guys. That went out and did a homicide purposely. Now, granted, it wasn't a drug deal versus a drug dealer, no thing like a street thing, but it was more of a, well, my wife left me for such and such, and me and him had words, and I shot him dead. And and I'm like, I don't understand. How did James and Scotty over here get a get a 15 or a 10 to 20, or in one case I know, 7 to 14, but Yusef and the rest of them all got life. Right. And, and that, that is just, that needs to change. If I think, I think as far as prison reform, I think they need to go back and look at the sentencing structure and make it fair across the board. If, if you got a homicide and he got a homicide and they were the same kind of homicide, then if he deserves 10 to 20 years and he should get 10 to 20 years he shouldn't get 10 to 20 and he gets life that never sat well with me and it, I went through the same thing for myself because I said damn I got a 20 to 40 when I tell people I did 20 to 40, I got a 20 to 40 year I had a 20 to 40 sentence year they they say did you who did you murder and I'm like I didn't murder anybody <laughs> you know what I mean? I said, yeah, I did a robbery. I was literally robbing drug dealers. I said, I can put you on the phone with him. I talked to him once a month because we all keep each other in line. And uh, I, I, I said, yo, it's, it's it's amazing. I said, they they literally, due to my own fault, don't get me wrong, two, two rights don't make it wrong. But man, I could have learned this lesson. And, and I honestly tell you, if you gave me a five to 10, by the time I got done doing the five, I, I'd have been like, Yo, we're good. <laughs> I get the message. <laughs> I get the message. It, it didn't. It didn't take. It didn't take fifteen years, four months, and three days to learn this lesson. It didn't. It, it helped kept driving it in, but it, it it didn't. It didn't take that. And it's just sad when you see people who never get that chance because 
They're stuck. They're just stuck. Yeah, when you first told me 15 years and then told me what it was for, and I remember I asked you like a year ago when we first talked for the first time, like you told me about it, and I was like, man, it did. It always seemed like it always seemed like a lot, man. For you know, how old are you at the time? Uh, at that time, I was uh, when when did I go? And I was twenty twenty one. Yeah, twenty one. Came home thirty eight. Yep. Yeah, young kid, man. You know what I mean? Young kid. And uh, what so, what was your experience like with law enforcement? You know, from from the time of your arrest through being in the prison system, even to now. You know, you're seven years out. Well, I to tell you the truth, I never had a problem with like law enforcement. I understand. I would hate to be a cop nowadays because they're stuck between a rock and a hard place. They they can't do nothing right and they can't do nothing wrong in the public eye. That's <laughs> they're really stuck. But I, I don't have an issue with law enforcement, and it's kind of like the irony of my story. I didn't say this part, but like I said, when I was born, my mother went into the military to keep me out of trouble. And then while my mother was working full time for the military, my mother was also a cop. My mother was also a sheriff. My mother was a CO. And at one point in life, my mother was a state trooper. So I've always had a cop car in the driveway. (laughs) (laughs) I've always my entire life had a cop car in the driveway. So it's just the irony of it is like, wow, my mother literally joined the military. And I guess I would say law enforcement kind of came along with that to keep me out of trouble. And my dumb ass as a youth still gets in trouble. How's that possible? It's, 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 it's wild. But as far as police, no, I, I feel, I feel bad. I, I really do. I don't, I think what I honestly believe is today's, today's police officers, because we're only one generation apart from Jim Crow, only one. But I, I feel most of the officers that I know, I say about the 25 that I know personally offhand, I think they're all out there trying to do the great. I think they're all trying to do the best they can do and do the best they can do for the, the people in the communities. I think they're all paying for the sins of not of what's recent, not George Floyd and the flood or what flood, I believe his name is, but not because of that. It's just that when you look at the history of America, the history of America, uh, I always tell people, yes, slavery was a long time ago, but Jim Crow wasn't. Uh, you figure 1964, the Civil Rights Act bill was passed. 1968, four years later, King is assassinated because he's still marching. 1970, black people are still marching, still with suits and ties, but before all this baggy pants and hanging off your butt and boxers showing stuff. I said, I was born in 75. In 70, they were still marching. We're only separated by 57 years of when it was illegal. Well, I should say when it was legal to basically say, you can call me anything you want to call me under the sun. And at that time, a lot of things that were happening in America were enforced by police. When you look at the, the old black and white videos of the fire hoses and, and the police dogs and, and, and fire trucks, and that, that was, that was, 56 years ago so I, I tell people if you're if your grandfather is alive if matter of fact it's not even grandparents sometimes if your parents are alive they were here when that was happening it wasn't like it was right. a long time ago so I think today's officers today's officers are badly paying for yesterday's officers actions that's that's how I see I don't really I don't have a beef with the police, but I also didn't go through anything like, like my 
what my grandfather went through. Like my grandfather is leery of 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 white people, and I think he has a whatever he's been through. He he has the right to feel that way. Um, besides fighting in World War II, you know, he's come home and seen some things. My grandfather's 93 years old. So, and in, 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 in type of things he's seen in 93, in 93 years, I can't imagine, but I know he, he's like, he tells grandson, you know, your girlfriend's white, right? I'd be like, yep, yep. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you gotta be careful out there. Uh, I, and I, like I said, I understand, you know what I mean? He's, he, he came from a time where that it doesn't happen that ooh, I can I can only imagine but as far as like I said when it comes to the police today I I find myself in my circles now I'm, I hang with the mayors the police officers I hang with all kinds of people and I, I really feel for most of them like I feel they have a hard job because of not what they're doing now is pretty much of what I don't I don't want to yeah the past officers past not so much what happened with the the floyd case i think the floyd case sucks no one deserves a knee on the neck for nine minutes um that that was a little like okay that was a mess up but every cop in america also agreed that that was pretty stupid dude you know what i mean it's like no one took his side and was like yeah i always put my knee on somebody's neck for nine minutes and in the whole like, jujitsu community too. I mean, everybody with a jujitsu background, whether it was John Jones, whether it was Joe Rogan, anybody that you know came right out right. and said, you know, that that's you know, you hold a blood choke that long. And I, I was arguing right. with it with another guest of mine uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he was he was trying to argue the point. Maybe he wasn't on it all the way. This, that, and the other. And I'm like, you know, if, you, if you've been choked a million times, you know, sometimes you don't need both carotid. Sometimes you don't need to hold both, you know, for uh, 10 right. seconds. Sometimes it's two minutes and you just hold one of them and you go out. And sometimes, you know, it's just, uh, it's just, there's no doubt that that contributed to his death. And right. if you've been there and you've been in the situation, you know, this is, one of a million reasons, me and you could talk about why jujitsu is so valuable for people. But right. if, you, if you've been in that situation and you lived it, you knew right away that right. you know that that's the wrong thing to do, and uh, right. very likely contributed to his death. I want to ask you something. Um, yes. You know, as we talk about jujitsu, and I want to ask you a little bit about the work that you're doing with the scholarship fund because. You know, I said before, I kind of keep watching you take it to the next level with whatever it is, with your business, with jujitsu. And this was one of the latest endeavors that you took on was the scholarship fund that you're doing for uh, for younger uh, children, underprivileged children, uh, kids that suffer from bullying to get involved with jujitsu. And I want to segue that in with a uh, discussion I had on a, on a previous podcast. Um, mm-hmm. We were talking about the issue of race. And, you know, one of the things that I brought up was... I just, you know, we train at the same gym. Uh, you know what our gym looks like. It's a very diverse spot. You know, you yes. have Asian people, white people, black people. We have people from all over at a gym. We have Indian people. Uh, you know, everybody Everybody just goes in and trains. And uh, I was talking about what a nice, you know, what a nice environment it is. Because, it, you know, the issue of race doesn't really come up because people are so busy focused on being friends and they're so busy focused on training together and, you know, they're right. so busy focused on hitting the move right and, and you know, what right. we can learn from each other and, and how nice that is. But I wanted to tie that into like a question to you about, you know, what 
the jujitsu lifestyle um, has done for you and, and why you think it's so important that children get involved with it. And then maybe if you want, tell my listeners uh, about the scholarship fund that you started and why you started it because uh, I got an inkling that some people might be interested and uh, you might get some contributions. Okay. Well, I appreciate that. <clears throat> no, um, I think the jujitsu life really overall uh people always hear people talk about jujitsu especially guys who do jujitsu right guys and gals um but jujitsu teaches you everything that you need in life it, it teaches you uh to overcome it, it uh the the they say the job of a white belt is just to survive that's it we have no other job at white belt just to survive for two three years <laughs> and, and that's what you really do but in in the process you you learn to overcome challenges you over you overcome uh, so many things that obstacles that are thrown at you and and you have to learn to deal with it and then it, it teaches you perseverance there's uh, maybe next to wrestling i don't think there's anything other that can teach you to just if you have a goal to stick with it jujitsu is it it's it's the longest art in the world as far as getting from white belt to black belt it's it's just it's it te- i don't i i can't say all the benefits of it uh besides i mean the the obvious getting in shape and building friendships and 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 it's just everything that can go right in life (laughs) you can learn in life also you you will learn it on the mat you will learn it during jujitsu um and that kind of led to what with the the scholarship, uh, my buddy who introduced me to jujitsu in the early in the, what would that be the mid nineties? His name is Joe Van Brackle. Um, Joe, uh, the before I got in trouble, give you a background on Joe. Joe's whole life was uh, eat, fight, train, rinse, repeat. Eat, fight, train, rinse, repeat. But what first led me to Joe, what Joe took me under his wing is. There was a white guy in Eastern PA, his name Joe Van Brackle, and and they always say you got that one white guy who's always surrounded by all the blacks and Puerto Ricans, but no nobody would mess with him. Joe was that guy. <laughs> <laughs> Joe was that guy. He embodied that guy. And I wasn't like Joe. Like Joe didn't have a problem. He had no fear. I've seen him do some things that made me say, unbelievable, he's Captain America. Um I, I I had to approach him one day. I, I really did because I wasn't good fighting. And my at that time, my attitude would only let you, you could only save it so much before I said something back that was pretty slick. And people then would say, well, you don't want to fight. And unfortunately, I'd be like, well, you're right. I don't want to fight. I don't know how to fight. Why? <laughs> but if you're cracking jokes and I start cracking jokes too, don't get mad if my jokes are a little better than yours. So one day I, when I finally met him or heard all these stories, I said, I said, yo, are you... Joe Van Brackle, he said, yes. And I said, look, there's a billion stories going around about you. And I, I, I was like, I can't fight. But can you teach me? And, and I, you know, he's funny. He kind of looked at me like I was like I was playing, but he knew I wasn't. And he was like, yeah, sure. And from that moment on, we was like best friends. And, and I, I know what it's like myself to be called out or, or feel like you're being bullied i don't i don't think i was ever being bullied i'm i don't think i was but i know i've definitely been talked to like well you don't want to fight because you can't fight and, and i know that feeling like yeah i really don't want to fight you i really don't <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> so, we've all been there i think 
Right. So, so, uh, you know, if I, I always said, if I can stop any other kid from going through that ever, jujitsu teaches kids that you get a kid on a jujitsu mat long enough. He starts looking like, man, I don't care who you are. <laughs> you know what I mean? It, it just builds so much confidence. It, it it, it lets you it lets you walk with your head higher. It lets you walk with your chest out a little more. It lets you feel like, yeah, you you don't you're not going to talk to me like this. So I, I just think of all the things that jujitsu has done for me, and in that regards, and just overall life. So I say for myself, if I can give that experience to any kid who maybe can't afford jujitsu, I'm going to do that. If I can give it to a kid that maybe bullied or had the potential to be bullied. Like the first guy I got in there, Raiden, um, hoping we get him back soon. I'm not sure he was training at a particular school, but ever since COVID hit, the kids' classes kind of took a hit. Um, I'm waiting for him to get back on the map. But with him, what 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 made him my the first person was he's so tiny. And at that time, he was five. He, he What was he, six? He was six. He was six years old. And he was so tiny for a six-year-old that, I, I talked it over with my, my, my little board members and I was like, do you think he's going to get bullied when he's, you know, or has the potential to get bullied when he gets older? And then people all said, yep. So let's let's nip this in the bud early if we can. So he, he became our first guy. And right now, um, um, things are starting to pick back up. So we're looking for a second person, uh, hopefully a girl this time. I'm trying to do boy, girl, boy, girl, boy, girl. But, uh, I, I think I think jujitsu. I think martial arts overall is good for any kid. Um, I'm a little biased when it comes to jujitsu. I've always said <laughs> it, if if a, if a, if a kid, if, if there was nothing in this area, even if I don't live nowhere near around, and 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 word got back to me, if there was only a karate or a boxing school, I would I would I would gladly pay for the karate or boxing, just because it gives you confidence, it builds you up. You you have to stay with it. You know what I mean? Is it's just everything in martial arts is there's just less, great. There's less likely of a chance that you'll be involved in a fight if you train too. You know. Like yes. I said to Nick Lentz one day, the uh, UFC fighter is a buddy of mine, and we message each other every once in a while. But I sent him a message one day. I said, Nick, how do you deal with all these guys on the keyboard on Twitter that you know talk right. all this shit to him online? And I'm like, when you know, like, hey, he was like the number one ranked flyweight in the world. Like, Nick Lentz is right. a bad motherfucker, right? Y- yes, he like, is. <laughs> I was like, you know, what, is that, what does that feel like when you know you could just go out and mangle anybody and it, people, all these people are talking all this shit? And he was like, Chris, he's like, people that, you know, talk like that, they've never fought before. Because anybody that has fought before understands exactly how hard it is. You know, right. and, and understand exactly what even just jujitsu, even just grappling or even just boxing, like you said, like you would step in and put on 16 ounce gloves and go three rounds <laughs> and see, you know, see what kind of cardio that takes. See what kind of arm strength. See if you can just hold your fucking arms up, man. You know, like yes. people can't hold their arms up for, for two minutes wearing 16 ounce gloves. So, you right. know, they, they see it on TV and it looks so like, hey, these guys aren't really doing anything or, you know, mm-hmm. why isn't he throwing more punches? It's like. Okay, like get in there and see how long you last. Go roll, you know, go roll a just roll a 5-minute round. Go roll a 5-minute <laughs> round, you know, and yep, and see yep. if you can hang in the whole time. So, but yeah, but the the people that are, that that get that training, you know, it's not just the confidence, man, right? It's the people that get intimate right. with it. They know 
uh, you know, they know what fighting is. They understand it a little bit better, and that I think makes them way less likely to uh, to engage right. in it. Obviously, right? Yes. Yeah. No. I, I, there's no. There's no. I haven't found any cons in 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 the martial arts. I really haven't. I, I would tell people when they ask, I just did this the other day. A friend of mine was like, I want to put my son in karate. I instantly said, well, you ever thought about jujitsu? <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, not, not just taking anything from karate, but I said, if, if you leave me, I'll put everybody in jujitsu. <laughs> yeah. I don't, I'm not a shit talker by any other martial arts because I, you know, I'm a, right. a, a beginner and uh and i'm not interested in creating conflict but what i will say there is a there's a karate gym next to where i go to pick up my uh sushi a place that i get sushi locally and so when right. i when i walked through the shopping center last night i actually picked up sushi and i watched uh they were doing a class on heavy bags i don't know what they were doing it wasn't karate i mean it was a karate place but it looked like right. they were boxing and i was watching some of the punches being thrown and i was like that's interesting you know this maybe, mm-hmm. maybe check out a maybe check out a gracie school maybe check out an mma gym you know i don't be a snob because i'm not but right. hey man if, if you get, if you work a sweat up and it and it's good for you mentally and i support yes. it whatever it is man i support it. right you know when i think yep. about evan when i think about the jujitsu lifestyle man just to wrap up and i think about you know, our coach Jordan said to me one day, we were talking about a tournament I competed in and how the it was actually the one where, where uh, we were in together. We were in the same division the last like right. uh, a year ago or whatever it was. And I was right. telling him, you know, like how, how terrible I felt that tournament and, you know, how I, I think I went out on the mats trying to kind of be somebody that I wasn't in terms of my jujitsu. You know, I was... I was trying to be, you know, very aggressive. I was trying to be, uh, you know, a wrestler. I was trying to be kind of, you know, just go out with a little like alpha male spirit. Because you know, Jordan man is a bad motherfucker, right? Jordan. Yeah, he's a bad motherfucker. <laughs> yeah. So when I was training leading up to that tournament with Jordan, and of course Jordan is like, he's like grind. You know, he's a wrestler. He's like a world class right. wrestler. He's a jujitsu black belt. And and his you know his style is you know he will just demoralize somebody and just grind them to death and like he's just right. it's like an immovable object and so you know prior to that my style had always been a little bit more relaxed and a little bit more passive a lot of counterattacks a lot of playing defense that kind of stuff and he said to me when we were doing like a, a wrap up of that tournament you know you have to find out what what your style is and you have to be able to kind of express yourself uh through mm-hmm. your style right through your jujitsu right. through your style like you said earlier you know it's got to be uh i think a reflection of who you are too as right. a person so when i think about when i think about my personal style and, and the style of people that i like to watch and right. the people that i like to listen to I, you know because i think everybody in the jujitsu community they have they have people that they look up to and mm-hmm. they have people that maybe they identify with even, you know, like uh, top tier fighters, but people right. that, you know, they see reflections of themselves in or, or the way, yeah, the way that they want right. to fight, the way they want to deliver. And the people that um, ha- have always kind of like caught my 
uh, I in that regard, aside from everybody at our gym, because I feel very closely identified with everybody at our gym. I feel very good about our group and about our professor and, and Rich Lotta, who's an incredible guy that runs our gym, um, and Henzo, of course. Uh, right. But when I think about those people, man, I think about, you know, I think about the Torrance guys. I think about Henner and, and Heron. And I think right. about and I think about Henzo, man. And I and I watch right. the dynamic. I watch how these guys speak and how they live their lives through jujitsu mm-hmm. with this very uh I don't know, they have a very loose kind of positive, bright outlook on things where yes. they're very encouraging and they are I mean they really you look at a guy like Henzo, man, he just represents I think the best right of, of fighting and the best of what jujitsu can can do for somebody and right i just want to tell you man i this this podcast we just finished here is probably 20 times longer than any conversation me and you have ever had uh you know we talk <laughs> 10 minutes here or there but right. I, I gotta tell you man i i look up to you and i look up to the way that you know jujitsu has kind of made you into that kind of person too, and I and I I kind of hold you in that same light, man. Because when it boils down to it, right? No bullshit, man. That's you, man. You got a positive attitude every day. You're doing something for your community. You're an incredible success story about turning your fucking life around. You're a great training partner on the mats. You're always smiling. You compete. And uh, I just, uh, you know, and I think on behalf of a lot of people at the gym, too, man, uh, a lot of us look up to you, and I, I really appreciate you coming on and telling your story. I, I thank you for having me, man. I thank you I thank you for the kind word. You, you know what's really crazy? Can I say real fast? Sure. Um, After I posted my post of the at the last uh, – no, no. After I posted my post today or last night after training, after training the night before, I said uh, I can't wait to represent – I hope to represent Hensel Gracie PA proudly. Uh, for next year for the pans and uh, a guy that I competed against. Uh, he, he got on the comment, the guy, Roman, oh, I competed I against Roman. Yes. So, so Roman said, he said, Hey bro, he said, I just want to let you know, I trained with a bunch of guys at your gym. And uh, he said, believe me just from over here. Cause he lives in Delaware from Delaware to there. He said, I tell you, man, he said, your gym people are proud of you. He said, you don't have to worry about making the gym proud. Cause he said, everything you do or post about is always making your gym proud. <laughs> and I was like, really? And it, it was crazy because I, I didn't I didn't think that. But And this is coming from a guy who lives in Delaware. He, he was like, yo, your gym is definitely proud. He said, I'm proud to know you. I'm proud that you're in your gym. I, was, <laughs> I felt so good yesterday. It was crazy. But you're definitely not only a good ambassador of the gym, but you know, you're a good ambassador of – Henzo's lineage and uh, and just a great ambassador for jujitsu and uh, just a role model in general. I think, man, I think your story is just wonderful. So, thank you again so much for coming on and uh, probably see you at open mat tonight. <laughs> yes, <laughs> thank you for having me, brother. All thank right, you for having we'll me. We'll talk soon, my man. That was the one and only Evan Robinson, my buddy. I'm so happy that he was able to come on and share his story, man. I knew when I first talked to him that we'd have to get this down at some point. And uh, he worked with me on my schedule to make sure that we had some time to do it tonight. And uh, I just want to say I appreciate him. I put his information to the scholarship fund that he is running in the podcast description. I know he would love it if you could send him some love. And uh, I have uh, like three or four guests lined up for the next like six, seven days. So we had a couple of breaks here, but it's time to get back on it. I will be back very soon. I'm out of here for now. Fools. Peace.